All right, this is episode two, October of, I think we're called, we're not called what we were before, we're now the Barristers Breakdown. We are the Barristers Breakdown. I'm Scott Key. And I'm Kendall Browning. All right, so we, uh, in addition to this, we, we write a summary decisions publication for a Georgia nonprofit that does legal stuff, but we also do this as well. Yes, we do this for fun. For fun. Okay, and the other one is for work. I don't know what the other one's for. <laughs> but, um, okay, so I am, I, I do Supreme Court cases, and I know you do Court of Appeals cases. It was a big October. It was end of the term. It was what the, it was what the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court calls Distress Day. So there were a lot of Distress Day cases that came out the end of October. And at least for the Supreme Court, there were a set of huge cases that came out. And I think that's the case from the Court of Appeals as well. Yes, there were a lot of opinions that came out from the Court of Appeals this month. And I I feel like there was a lot of good meat to the decisions that came out in October. Well, tell me about one. Um, Well, I don't have a favorite this month. But the first one that I looked at was Green v. State. And it was A19A1122. And it kind of limited the scope of the 404B analysis I really like the opinion because it, it wasn't just, it was the justices saying, don't just say the words knowledge, identity, intent, or establishing lack of mistake or accident. Let's actually look at each one of those. Because because you've gone to those hearings where it's all it all seems like it's it's all a foregone conclusion yep. and everybody's spouting magic words and, and you're not getting any analysis. You used to hear bent of mind. Yeah. And I never knew what in the world bent of mind meant. Yeah. But you just had to say these magic words and it came in. And this is actually looking at the magic words and what they mean and how they apply. And I actually got a motion for 404B after I read this case and I was like, oh, I'm going to have so much fun with this. Like, we're not just going to say the words. I'm going to look at this case and kind of, it really narrowed the scope. I really thought it was a great analysis. Well, what happened in the case? Um, Well, the guy was charged with aggravated assault, and they used a 1982 conviction for manslaughter as 404B evidence. And so... That's an old conviction. It was an old conviction. So they actually looked at the facts of the 1982 conviction as compared to what he was on trial for, and they um, reversed. And they went back and they said that you can't use the 1982 conviction because it really didn't go towards knowledge, identity, intent, or establishing lack of mistake or accident. And it has a really good part about intent in there, too, okay. um, that I think is important. It's not not every crime requires intent and in how they look at that. So I thought that was important. I was at a I was at an argument one time, and I heard Don Samuel uh, defending against a 404B. And this might have been a pre-404B case. This might have been like an, an old, like similar transactions case. Yeah. And the justices were asking him questions. Well, isn't it true, like in the one case he did this, and in the other case he did that? And I remember Don Samuels got Don Samuel got exasperated and said, "Well, I mean, I suppose just I don't even know who the justice was, Justice Jones, whatever. Um, I suppose we could say they, they in both cases the victim had two eyes and one nose. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, there there are always these similarities that don't make much of a difference. So I'm glad to see some real analysis because it's always seemed a little thin. Yeah, and this definitely kind of bulked it up a little bit, and I think brings it in." For prosecutors, you can't just bring in everything as 404B. So I, I really liked the Green case. And 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 this was a complete reversal. This wasn't a remand for further findings. This was a you can't use this. Yes, it okay. was a reversing, grants him a new trial because they couldn't use the 404B. Evidence. And that's with a and that's with a fairly tough standard of review too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like. I said it, it's got some really good language. You should look at it. That's a good one for your toolbox. Yep. 
All right, well, I don't know where to start. It was it was quite the month it was. at the Supreme Court. So I guess I'll start with McClure because that's a good case. That's mm-hmm. a good case for the defense bar. And there were two of them, right? Uh, yes. Yep. So McClure is October the 7th, 2000. Yep, there's McClure and then there was Pennington. And they addressed the same issues. They they addressed the same issues. And we can talk fact. I think I think one they you sort of they go in depth about and that's McClure and then Pennington they talk about in light of the fact that they were announcing McClure the same day. So McClure is S18G1599, October 7, 2019, and the court granted cert to answer the following question. What, if anything, must a criminal defendant admit in order to raise an affirmative defense? Must the defendant make any such admissions for all purposes or only limited purposes? And, I, and, and the short answer to that question is an affirmative defense is one in which the defendant argues that even if the allegations of the indictment or accusation are true, there are circumstances that support a determination that he cannot or should not be held criminally liable. And more to the point, in asserting an affirmative defense, a criminal defendant may accept for sake of argument that the evidence authorizes a finding that he committed the act alleged in the charge at issue. And the defendant is free to pursue alternative defenses and I think the most important thing, and I think we all knew this, but I have come across, I've been in courtrooms where prosecutors have tried to claim, or at least in plea negotiations, they've tried to say this to me on the phone. And I've seen cases, I've gotten appeals where the prosecution said, nope, the defendant has to take the stand and has to say, I did it yeah. in order to be entitled to, a, to an affirmative defense. Like you. And, and if I've always assumed that the law was what the court says that it is, that that you can bring you can uh, you can bring out an affirmative defense through the way you cross-examine witnesses, and you can even testify and not admit to everything and be entitled to an affirmative defense. But I've seen I've seen prosecutors try to bully people under the stand in this, and the Supreme Court says I wrote I wrote up in my summary. This case counters a well-entrenched prosecutorial urban legend that a defendant was required to testify and admit to the elements of the crime before being entitled to an instruction on an affirmative defense. I definitely think that's a widespread urban legend that you have to say that you did it in order to have an affirmative defense. And I definitely think it's good to have cases like McClure where it just lays out what you are entitled to for jury instructions. Well, because we've all had those clients that just for intellectual deficiencies or mental issues or pure just, stubbornness just pure stubbornness who just won't make who who can't be a good witness yeah. or, or like they're youthful or they're really old or you know they just can't communicate you know they're not public speakers yeah and and you know prosecutors have tried and you should be entitled to to your defense you shouldn't have to give up your 5th amendment right in order to be entitled to a def- to an affirmative defense if the law entitles you to it um, there was a there was a related case, Pennington v. State, which is S eighteen G fourteen ninety five, and again they don't go as in depth there as they do, but this, that's a case where a defendant was charged with possession with intent to distribute methamphetamine within a thousand feet of an of an elementary school, and this person was entitled to an affirmative defense that no minors were present, that the drugs were in a private resident, and that the that the conduct was not undertaken for financial gain in spite of the fact that he not he did not admit to possessing the drugs or being involved in the conduct. So you could assert a mere presence defense and say, look, even if it was mine, um, even if you don't believe me on that, it still was it, it still wasn't these other things. And he was perfectly entitled to that 
under the same principles announced in McClure. Yeah. I mean, I think that was a good... I actually like that case more than McClure because of the facts of the possession of methamphetamine. Namias gives us a really good tip in the concurring opinion that says, basically, we're not saying that lawyers are ineffective if they fail to pursue multiple defenses. And in fact, you know, because, you know, you, you could really... You could really lose a case by pursuing affirmative defenses. I mean, I'm sorry, alternative defenses. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. And um, and for a variety of reasons, the concurrent notes that even if you get into situations where there was slight evidence that authorized a jury charge, um, there's still like a harmless error analysis. So I do think that probably Namias' concurrence is good in the sense that I could see lawyers being pressured to put up like you know your what was it like i didn't do it but if i did it it was self-defense and if it wasn't self-defense i was insane you know the the typical law school scenario so i mean i'm glad nami has kind of reins it in a little bit yeah so what else on the court of appeals um well i looked at the state v newsom it was decided on october 25th and it's a 19 a 1623 and it was use of the knock and talk procedure. Mm-hmm. And I had a real hard time reading this and not thinking it was dirty because it was all about the expectation of privacy at so the back no- door. So knock and talk is like literally the, the law enforcement doesn't have a warrant, but they come to your they come to your door or they approach you just to see if they'll get you to consent or just to, just to get themselves inside your house. Right. And so this was an officer who knock and talk was his bread and butter. He did it all the time. And he went to this house, he knocked on the door, and he didn't hear anything. But it was his common practice that if nobody answered the front door, he would walk around to the back door and knock on the back door. But in this case, it kind of sounded like he climbed over a hedge and up a set of <laughs> stairs and then over a wall. I don't know if he's he like did. a ninja knocking knock, and, knock was and talk expert. A ninja. Um, but he eventually got to the back door and it was a, a glass sliding door. And then in plain view, he saw the items that he was looking for, stolen items. Um, and the court was like, no. He's not, in a, he's not in a place where he should be standing to begin with. Right. And that was technically the curtilage of the home because of how it was positioned. It was up a flight of stairs. It was over a wall. It was, you know, because of how you had to maneuver to get to the back door, it was in the curtilage of the home and he wasn't allowed to be there. Um, I thought it was a fun case just because I pictured that officer climbing over a wall and over a hedge and up a flight of stairs. Because he wasn't standing in a place where you would normally have people walk up, like if they're trying to... I don't know, get you to come to their church or sell you something. And another thing that the court said was like, we're talking about an apartment in this specific case. So if you knock on the front door, they're going to be able to hear you through the whole apartment. Because it's a small space. Because it's a small space. So it's different than if you're at a mansion, you knock on the front door. Maybe they are in a different room in the house and they didn't hear it. Um, But the dude really wasn't home. um, So they... Granted, the trial court granted the motion to suppress, the state took it up, and the Court of Appeals affirmed the grant of the motion to suppress. Uh, so I wonder if factually, I mean, given the standard of review, had the trial court gone the other way, if you would have seen the opinion as what it was? I wonder. I'm not sure. Hmm. I mean, it seemed pretty blatant. So had they gone the other way, I, I want to think that it would have come back. Okay. But, well, that's a good that's a good Fourth Amendment case. That's yeah. a and that's a, that's a fun case too. Yeah, it was pretty fun. All right, so from the Supreme Court, also from October the seventh, two thousand nineteen, uh, Mitchum versus State, and I'm sad to say that I'm 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 one of the losing lawyers in this case. Um, this was a case that the Habeas Clinic at Mercer University did. 
Um, the appellant brought an extraordinary motion for new trial, alleging that he was entitled to, release based, to relief based upon newly discovered evidence. The newly discovered evidence, though, had nothing to do with his guilt or innocence. The newly discovered evidence was apparently Mr. M this sounds like probably a sketchy story to begin with, but okay. let's, just, let's just assume that it's true. Okay. The newly discovered evidence is that the judge was seen having dinner or lunch with the jury and I think both of the lawyers or like the state, which, you know, the court said if true, that would have been troublesome. But the, um, the, the Supreme Court... The Supreme Court said, this isn't the category of newly discovered evidence that matters under the extraordinary motion for new trial statute. And this should have been brought via habeas. So if there's, a, if there's evidence of a procedural irregularity, it doesn't fit within the newly discovered evidence rule. The newly discovered evidence literally has to relate to the guilt or innocence of the accused. And evidence of impropriety in the proceedings themselves don't fall under the umbrella of extraordinary motion for new trial. Uh, this should have been brought by habeas, though. Habeas wasn't going to be an option at the time this person found out about it because it was well past the statute of limitations okay. for habeas. I was going to ask if he still had the option to mm, do I don't habeas. think he does. I think he's, I think he's past that. Oh. Yeah. Well, um, let's see. What else? I have a merger issue from the Court of Appeals that came out on October 29th that actually overturned um, a line of cases, okay. which I thought was interesting. It seems like there's a line of cases on merger getting overturned every month. I think so. I think yeah. the Court of Appeals is like going back and like, okay, let's clean this up a little bit. And that's what they did here. Um, it's Thomas B. State, and it was A19A1195. And Mr. Thomas was charged with two counts of possession of a firearm by a first offender, but they were alleged on different dates. So Mr. Mm -hmm. Thomas said that those should have merged for purposes of sentencing once he was convicted. Because he possessed one firearm at one point in time. No, he okay. actually possessed two firearms on two separate dates. But he was only a convicted felon once? Yes. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> So he alleged that they should have merged for the purposes of sentencing, and the trial court said no. So they went back and they looked at what it was was the materiality of the dates in the language in the indictment. So because the indictment didn't say that the date was a material fact that had to be proven that they merged for the purposes of sentencing. And it overturned a number of cases that said well, it doesn't matter if it says it's material. The date is always material. And then they were like, well, that's bad law, and I don't know how. And it's, and it's not. I mean, if you're the state, you can't have it both ways. You know, you've been in those child molestation cases uh, yes. where, where, like, you've got a specific date alleged in the indictment, and then, you know, it's really important that you can establish that, you know, maybe it's a visitation arrangement, and you can prove that child wasn't in your client's custody at the time or wasn't. You know, was off somewhere, and the state always wants to move the target on you. Well, it doesn't matter. Date's not material unless you bring an alibi defense. So I guess if the state wants to have that as an advantage, this comes along with it. Right. So you have to allege that it's material in the indictment for it to be material. So they sent, the Court of Appeals sent this back to the trial court for resentencing because those two do actually merge. Even though they were different firearms on different days, they merged for sentencing. Oh, that's weird. It, it was a weird one. Every merger case is weird. Yes, they're all weird. Yeah, um, I, I, have, I, have one, I have one out of uh, Taylor County now that's going back for resentencing um, on a merger issue. So that's, it, and it's, they're always the most confusing things in a brief to write. Yeah, and this was confusing to read um, because there, 
I mean, it was like he had a firearm, he used it, he sold it to get another firearm, and then he got caught with a second firearm. It was interesting facts. Well, and, and, and that's why I always say if there's, if there's even the slightest possibility, if there's an argument that you can make with a slightly straight face about merger, Do you it. should. Because I think, I think the court's confused. Yeah. There were a lot of merger issues that I looked at from the Court of Appeals that didn't make it to our podcast today. Uh-huh. Um, there was a lot of taking back for resentencing that came out this month. So they're definitely reevaluating a mer- merger. I think, I think it's one of the most overlooked sentencing. Even when you're entering a guilty plea, you need to look at merger issues. Yeah. There was actually a case that came out of my circuit this month in the Court of Appeals. It was Anderson versus the state where they ruled that factually a simple battery merged into a robbery by sudden snatching. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And they sent it back. It was the excellent Ron Daniels who argued that ah, okay. murder case. That's great. Um, so they sent that one back to, for resentencing. It was very. It was an interesting argument. Okay, and speaking of interesting arguments, uh, let's talk about Dos Santos versus the state, which is S19A1352, October 21, 2019. And, man, I'm thinking public defenders must be freaked out by this one. Just a little bit. Okay, so... This is a, and, and I, I saw this coming on the horizon because there's been some cases like this in the past year or so. But this deals with when do you stop being a person's lawyer? And for my whole career, I've assumed that when your client pleads guilty and is sentenced, you can close the file, it's over. That's when I stop receiving mail. Right. Right. They stop giving me the letters after they've pled guilty and are sentenced. And it turns out, no, I'm, I was wrong this whole time. So um, there's a couple of things at issue here. So um, if you're going to move to withdraw your guilty plea, your deadline to withdraw the plea is within the term of court in which sentence was imposed. Right. That could be anywhere from tomorrow. It could be the day after the plea is, is entered all the way to, if you're on a rural circuit, to like six months later, right. or maybe close to a year later. Some, you know, some places have really lengthy terms and they don't have many. You go to Fulton and there's like a term every month or something. Like, and there's no uniform term. Like n- wherever you go, the terms are different. You can say our terms are three months. Uh-huh. So that's our term of court. Okay, so Dos Santos enters a guilty plea. He, he then, after he's entered the guilty plea, um, but within the term of court, he pro se files a motion to withdraw his plea. Right. The term passes. Um, this then so then it's either dismissed or denied, and the Supreme Court holds that that motion to withdraw the guilty plea was a nullity because it was filed pro se while the client was still represented by the plea counsel, and. Uh, the court held that Dos Santos was represented by her plea counsel who had a duty to continue the representation of her at least through the end of the term of court unless he properly withdrew from the case or was replaced by substitute counsel. And going forward, the court announces that it will dismiss appeals of motions to withdraw in such situations. And quote, Georgia lawyers cannot simply abandon, they use the word abandon, cannot simply abandon their criminal defendant clients immediately after the, the defendants enter a guilty plea and are sentenced. Defense counsel are obligated to continue to represent their client at least until the time for these post-conviction remedies expire and if such remedy is timely pursued until it is resolved. Unless the lawyer is properly authorized by the trial court to withdraw from the representation, 
or is properly replaced by substitute counsel. Which, you know, how do you know? I mean, if your client, I mean, what are you supposed to do? If, I, I suppose what you'll do is you'll enter the plea and then have the judge let you withdraw from the case as soon as the plea is over so that your client can file a pro se. Mm-hmm. You know, that would make sense. It would be kind of weird to do that procedurally. Like, we're, well, done, we're but, done with the plea. Can I go now? Yeah, and, but, you know, under under the Uniform Superior Court rules that relate to withdrawing from a case, you're technically required to send them notice of your intent to withdraw. That's true. To warn them of all the things, like you're going to be on your own and you have to understand all these, you know, you'll be treated like you are a lawyer. And then there's supposed to be a 10-day waiting period. Now, I suppose the client can waive that. Um, or it just seems that it puts you at odds with your client. It just, yeah. something doesn't feel right about it. Yeah, and it definitely makes me panic. Like, that language, like, abandoning your client. That's, those are strong words. Yeah, gives me the panic feeling because uh-huh. I don't feel like I'm abandoning them, but you're right. If these are, if they're not going to accept these motions to withdraw, then then we've got to do something about it. I don't know how we approach it. Well, if it. you look in the Georgia Bar Journal, you know that dreaded place in the back of the Georgia Bar wow. Journal? Where yes. you see Where you see who got disbarred last month? Yeah. They use words, I mean, abandonment are the words that you see there. And, you know, I just never thought that after the after the sentence, I, I had more stuff to do. And, you know, and it gets weird because the court then, the court then goes on to advise um, what conscientious lawyers should do, which I, I always, <laughs> I, I don't want to say too much about that, but I, I'm told what I'm supposed to do to be conscientious, which is, before the plea is entered, defense lawyers can explain to their client the basic processes for and limitations on post-conviction challenges to guilty plea, leaving only the decision to be made about whether to invoke the process. And when the time is tight, they say plea counsel may protect their client's interest by timely filing a bare-bones placeholder motion for a motion to withdraw a guilty plea. And that's what conscientious lawyers should do. If you're not conscientious then you'll have the right to habeas or out-of-time appeal when abandoned by your plea counsel. Now, I mean, I've been, and I don't know how they do it in your circuit, but I go all over the place. And sometimes, and, and the plea colloquies are different, but sometimes you encounter these plea, these plea colloquies where the judge will ask you, Mr. Key, do, do you know of any reason why I shouldn't accept this plea? Do you feel your client understands the, the rights he's giving up? Do you feel like, you know, and then the lawyer, the client is often asked, are you satisfied with the services of your lawyer? Um, so I'm going to say, judge, no, honestly, as an officer of the court, um, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't accept this plea. I think he understands it. Um, he understands what he's given up and we, this is what he wants. Except in about five minutes, I'm about to go file a motion to withdraw. Just in case. Just in case. So, like, I'm I'm very confident this is all good, except in a minute I'm going to file a motion to withdraw it. I'm going to be unconfident. Because I'm going to be conscientious. Confident, but conscientious. <laughs> yes, confident, but con- conscientious. So, I mean, I, it's not a, I mean, I don't think I've ever had this come up in my practice, but I would bet, imagine in the volume that like a public defender handles in a particular courtroom, what are you supposed to do? I mean, and, and see, I'm not sure I've ever had it come up. But like I said, after we do a guilty plea and I close out the file, you're done. I stop getting correspondence from my client. Right. Like it just goes right into the file. So what if they mail me a letter that say they want to withdraw their guilty plea and I haven't gotten it? 
Like, what's my duty then? Or they pro se file a motion to withdraw. I mean, like, okay, you get a person a deal, and like, I mean, you know, they they got life with parole instead of life without parole. Or you you got you got them twenty five to serve instead of life, and you know they go to they go out of Jackson and they start thinking, man, I don't really. I mean, let me see if I can try to do something else. And they file a pro se motion and don't tell you about it. Right. Are you supposed to troll the docket to make sure that there's... I mean, that just seems like a lot. Yeah. It seems like you could put this on the judge and not the lawyer. You know, Mr... You know, you know, just like they're advised of they have four years to file habeas or they've got 30 days to... I mean, you could advise... You could say, if you're going to do this, you need to contact your lawyer. But we, it, it, it's put on us and told that if we're conscientious, here's what we should do. Right. And I thought about, you know, you could just do your own form where you'd explain the right to withdraw the plea and you have them sign it. And I just don't like, I don't like to, it just, I don't like things that, that feel like I'm just covering myself with a client. But you could do that. You could just, you could just show up to the plea hearing with a, with a withdrawal order. And you could say, my, you know, you could ask your client, do you waive the right to 10 days notice of my intent to withdraw because you're entering this guilty plea today? You understand that the court's going to sign an order and I'm going to be withdrawn from the case. I mean, I guess you could do that too. I mean, but that, that, that still seems, just feels like you're covering yourself. It's it just, just feels bad. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how we approach cases like this because it does put the burden on us and it's there's just a lot of kinks that still need to be worked out of that. Yeah, I don't know, but um, Dos Santos. The, I think the important thing to keep in mind is you're you're that person's lawyer until the end of the term of court. Right. But you know, I just wonder what if they decide, what if they decide they want to appeal, like for whatever reason, like um, I don't know why, but they just say, what if they filed a motion for new trial, or what if they filed a notice of appeal within the term? I wonder if Dos Santos says we're on for that as well, because typically there's a there's a division. Right. But like you're not owned for the appeal. Well, the way that my circuit does it is we have a waiver of post-conviction rights that tells them that the only means of appeal they have is ineffective. So in that case, they y'all, are, y'all are like a federal. That's very federal. Oh, the I way didn't, you do it. Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I know. But that I mean, it would limit them in that they would only be able to allege I'm ineffective, and in that case, I can't represent them. Because Which would be the case here too, though. I mean, I think right. most in, in most instances of withdrawal of a plea, they're going to be saying that you, that you did that something you're ineffective. wrong. Ineffective. Yeah. I don't know. I think you just need to monitor your cases as much as you can after you enter the guilty plea because it's deemed to be abandonment. Your strong words. Okay. What else from the court of appeals? Okay. So this one, I, this one might be my favorite. It's called Whipkey versus the state, and it was decided on October thirtieth, the day before Halloween, and it's a nineteen a zero eight nine seven. And this smooth character, Mr. Whipkey, <laughs> entered a plea to um, a violation of the Georgia Controlled Substances Act. He was sentenced to three years on probation under the Conditional Discharge Act, and he completed it. He did all that he was... Oh, I know about this case. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I know the case you're talking so about. So he did everything he was supposed to do, and they he completed his probation, and they signed an order discharging him under the Conditional Discharge Act, all said and done. And then somebody found out that he wasn't eligible 
under the Conditional Discharge Act when he entered his plea, which I thought was weird. When I read the case, it looked like the prosecutor had a copy of his criminal history at the time that they did the plea. So had they just looked through it, they would have known that he wasn't eligible, but they didn't. And they sentenced him and he was discharged. And the Court of Appeals, well, the trial court went back, vacated the order discharging his conditional discharge and adjudicated him guilty. (laughs) so the court of appeals reversed and found that when the trial court granted the state's motion to set aside the discharge that that was an error Um, the only way they would have been able to do that is if they prosecuted him for perjury for his guilty plea his original guilty plea and because they hadn't prosecuted him for perjury they couldn't move to set aside the conviction because conditional discharge when it's over it's over. The mm-hmm. fat lady has sung. <laughs> it is done. Um, so I thought it was interesting. So he went back and he he got his conditional discharge, even though he had already been. Even though he wasn't legally entitled to even it. Even though he wasn't legally entitled to it. Good for him. He gets yes. the gold. Unless he's presently being prosecuted for perjury. Yeah, and then, the it's not good. and then it's not good for him. But I think that would be tough if they didn't know either. Right. But I think the state knew, and that's what... When I was reading the opinion, I was like, but they but they knew. Like, they had his criminal history. They were holding it there when he did his plea, and they asked him if he'd ever been convicted of a felony before, and he said no, and they were holding the criminal history, so they knew. They knew, and, you know, if they knew, if they didn't know, he's presumed not to. I mean, I would think that would be a hard perjury conviction. Right. I think that they would just look bad. Yeah, it would. I mean, that would be a fun defense. It would be. Yeah. Mr. Whipkey, call us. <laughs> okay. Now we're going to go to a series of cases that, that October the 21st, 2019, I've deemed Black Monday. Black Monday. Black Monday at the Supreme Court. Let's talk about Collier, which I think is the beginning of the end of something in criminal post-conviction, in criminal direct appeals in Georgia. I think, I think we're going to see a change. It could be, I don't know if it'll be this term, but it'll, it, it's coming because I think, I kind of see the writing on the wall with this one. So this is... This doesn't look like much of a case at the beginning, but so this is Collier, S19A0658, October 21, 2019. The court has held that a criminal defendant is entitled to an out-of-time appeal if counsel's deficient performance deprived him of an appeal of right that he otherwise would have pursued. Um, A defendant seeking such an appeal must allege and, and prove an excuse of constitutional magnitude for failing to file a timely direct appeal. And I'll just tell you, this kind of thing happens more than you might think. And and often in the handoff between the trial attorney and the appellate and the appellate attorney, I do I do enough ap- appeals where I've goofed a couple of times in my career on this. Like you assume or you like your your client tells you or you get the case on day twenty nine or something. Right. And you think for whatever reason that the boilerplate motion for new trial was filed already. Right. And then you get it and it wasn't. Or you didn't do it. And typically you call the DA and say, look, I just need it. You could just file a motion for out-of-time appeal. It definitely wasn't my client's fault. It was my fault. And then I've, I've taken over cases where that didn't. It's never been a problem. But there was this line of cases that had emerged in the past few years that said, no, to be entitled to an out-of-time appeal, you have to prove that your appeal would have been successful. Right. Which would be pretty tough because most, most appeals aren't. Right. But it forfeits. But the damage to the right is the da- is what it turns on, not the damage to a successful appeal. You have a right to an appeal, whether it's successful or not. And so, if it's not the client's fault, 
what Collier holds is, then you're entitled to an out-of-time appeal. Um, I thought that was fairly, like, not dramatic. I thought that's what I assumed the law was. But um, four, four justices, this is Blackwell, Boggs, Peterson, and Bethel, issued a special concurrence in this case. And the first line, and I think this is a Peterson, I think Peterson authored it. The first line is worth quoting. We have created out of whole cloth what appeals, what appellate judges of this state have recognized for nearly 20 years as a tangled mess of post-conviction jurisprudence. We, have ne we should never have started making things up and we ought to stop now. And that paragraph concludes, we may need the General Assembly to save us from ourselves. Oh, that's, that's harsh. That's bad. <laughs> that's bad. That's harsh. That's bad. And so I'll tell you what they're gunning for. What they're after is, and I get it. I mean, I see both sides of it. And I'll just tell you that I benefit from this. Um, I think our system places an undue um, emphasis or attention on ineffective assistance of counsel. As a claim, it's not very good. It works about 4% of the time. Right. I, I think Jim Bonner did an analysis of it one year, and I think it was like 2 3 4%. But we have a system that like puts IAC on a pedestal. I mean, I get it. And like we're one of the few states in the country where you can expand the record in a motion for new trial hearing. And what I mean by that is if you're going to bring an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, you have, you have the right, in fact, the obligation— if you're new counsel at the motion for new trial and you don't raise an effective, you waive it. Right. Which just about ensures that you're going to raise it every time, whether it's there or not. Plus, you have your client pressuring you. It couldn't possibly be that the client's guilty, and that's it, why the client was found guilty. It has to be something else. It has to be that lawyer. Right. If that lawyer hadn't been so terrible, there's no way I'd be in prison. So you've got a system that sort of encourages it. You know, in the federal system, on a direct appeal— you don't get to expand the record. If you're going to raise ineffective assistance of counsel, it has to be apparent from within the four corners of the record or, or the transcript. Okay. And if you're going to raise ineffective assistance, it goes over to habeas. And then habeas, when you get to habeas in the federal system, the magistrate judge can look at it and dismiss it summarily, or the magistrate judge can say, okay, there's something here, and I'm going to appoint you a lawyer. And then we're, we're, we're going to expand the record now. Um, in Georgia, it's always been they do it up front. You do it on the motion for new trial phase. It looks to me like what the court wants to do is make us more like that. Okay. I, here's the problem. I mean, it's, and I'll just tell you as an appellate lawyer, I wish I never had to fool with that stuff most of the time. Now, when there's a legit ineffective claim, I'm glad it's there. Most of the time, there's not. And, I, and I, I think there's some value to vaulting that over to habeas. Here's the problem. In Georgia, you're not entitled to counsel in habeas. Right, and you have to be appointed, right? In well, there, you don't even get a lawyer. I mean, like, there's no, there's no provision to get you a lawyer for habeas. And that's why the habeas clinic at Mercer Law School exists is because certain clients get their case up to the Supreme Court, and the, the court asks, will, will, alert a, will alert the habeas clinic to cases and say, you might want to talk to this guy. So the habeas clinic almost functions as the public defender for certain. Hey, I mean, I don't, I don't think the court, the Supreme Court, would think that's exactly accurate, but that's what it feels like. Right. But so you you may have someone who's who is the victim of ineffective assistance who doesn't have the right to counsel to pursue it. And habeas is complicated. Habeas doesn't look complicated because the form doesn't look complicated, but habeas is complicated. And so I think what the what the Supreme Court's asking for in Collier 
I think that's a worthy goal if if we're going to have some provision in place where there's the right to counsel. Right. It would have to be more complex than just mm-hmm. saying that it's a habeas matter. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they, they, they grant the out-of-time, I mean, they say that he's entitled to an out-of-time appeal. You don't have to prove. The prejudice of, so it's an ineffective assistance, but the prejudice isn't your typical Strickland prejudice where you have to prove that you would have won your appeal. You just have to prove that it wasn't your fault that you didn't get the appeal and you can do an out-of-time appeal. I don't even know why the special concurrence goes into all the stuff they go into. It's just I think they were looking for an opportunity to say this stuff to the legislature. Well, they found it. They found it. And so I think, you know, look to, I mean, look, look. I think some stuff's coming in the next session as a result of Collier. So, Well, what else happened on Black Monday oh, other than Collier? Well, I, I suppose we could talk about, uh, we could talk about Mobley. Okay. Uh, Mobley's bad. Mobley is bad for us. Um, that's S18G1546, October 21, 2019. It's bad for us even though Mobley won. So this is a, this is a case out of Henry County, actually. It's a vehicular homicide. Um, law enforcement, so there's a, anytime there's a wreck, cars are equipped with what's called an ACM or a black, also known as the black box. Right. And, that, and that's the, um, Whenever cars started getting um, airbags in them, I think these started getting in cars. They're, they're any sort of any relatively modern car has these. It sometimes the data is not all it's cracked up to be a lot of the times, but the the ACM will tell you like stuff like the speed of the car, angle of the steering wheel, like what was going on when the airbag deployed and right before the airbag deployed. And sometimes it'll tell you if they apply the brakes. If they apply right? the brakes and stuff like that, so. Law enforcement goes over to the car that is still owned by the defendant and they just go and extract the black box data and they don't get a warrant. Okay. Um, and I can't remember what their argument was for not getting a warrant, but um, the court says, and this all sounds good for us at first, like as a threshold matter, when law enforcement enters a vehicle, connects a CDR device and downloads data, a search of the defendant's quote effects has taken place. The warrantless search of an ACM is covered by the Fourth Amendment under such circumstances, and so the and so like it's a, it's a fairly it's a fairly like basic seems like an obvious case, but they that then we get to the dicta. Okay, so the court then devotes the bulk of its attention on whether the exclusionary rule should apply, since the black box data would arguably have been inevitably discovered, and the court gets into the facts and says this would not be inevitable this would not have been inevitably inevitably discovered because there's no evidence that someone was in the process of going to get a warrant at the time that the, that the stuff was downloaded um but why does that matter under georgia law because um under ocga 17 530 um you know provides that the exclusionary rule always applies to illegal searches and so there's a there's a there's a U.S. Supreme Court case called Leon that says there's a good faith exception to the exclusionary rule. Well, it didn't exist in Georgia under OCGA 17530 because we thought that we had that that statute gave us more rights. The Supreme Court says no, mm-mm. that a, the OCGA 17530 doesn't say that inevitable discovery does apply. So there is a good faith exception. There is now a good faith exception to the warrant requirement in Georgia. That is so unfortunate. Now, the, and again, I think it's arguably dicta, um, but they decided to go ahead and analyze it. To 
even though the guy wins, they do the analysis and they say that, that, that no, Leon now applies in Georgia. Um, and so in this particular case, the exclusionary rule applied because there was no evidence that law enforcement was in the act of applying for a warrant at the time the ACM was downloaded. However, um, going forward, there's a good faith exception. It's going to be hard. It's going to be much, it's not like it was ever easy to win suppression. Yeah. But it's going to be harder now. So um, I know the DUI bars sunk. <laughs> I mean, I know they're sad about this. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a bad case. It's a bad case for us. Well, I'm looking at the next one on your list, State v. Towns. Okay. I think I heard about this one before I read the opinion. Oh, this is a this is kind of a funny case. So, this is Telfair County. Isn't this a homicide? Mm-hmm. Well, wasn't this a homicide? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a double homicide out of Telfair. Telfair County, uh, 50 prospective jurors are summoned, and you gotta love this. Like, f- uh, fewer than 16 showed up. Um, the presiding judge orders the sheriff to locate missing jurors. And as luck would have it, so you got like a general, like just a trial jury day. But as luck would have it, 150 people were coming in. No, wait a second. This is grand jury. Right. They this were looking for grand jurors. They were looking for grand jurors. 50 prospective people are summoned. Only 16 showed up, so they don't have enough. Right. But as luck would have it, they've got a trial, they've got a trial term starting like the next day. There's 150 people summons to show up um, to serve as jurors the next day. So the clerk just planned to pull them over for grand jury service, which I didn't know, but you can do that. Right. Uh, this sort of thing is allowed under OCGA 15-12-66.1. And if it ended there, it would have been We're fine. We're good. We're good there. But but um, but then the judge kind of had his novel. He goes, this, the problem is there's two, two of the prospective grand jurors were put on the panel not because like they were there, but because the clerk knew them and basically went out and got them, like wrestled them up. Um, I think like they were these were like local businessmen, right. and they were like, "Well, I know Jim and I know Roger over there, and you know they're good guys. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go ahead and have them come be on the grand jury." It wasn't that the problem is you have to randomly select grand jurors. Right, you can't just call up your aunt and uncle and ask them to come serve. Yeah, on call the grand jury. calling the guy that owns the florist in town. Um, so no, that 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 was not that was not random. Now the funny thing is the two dissenters are Ellington and Boggs. Boggs, who was a Superior Court judge in Waycross, mm-hmm. and Ellington, who I think was from Trutland County. Right, he's from South Georgia. Because he always talks about Soperton. If you ever hear him yeah, give yes. a speech, so Justice Ellington and Boggs, who are two former South Georgia trial judges, they they're like it's cool, like it's fine. We do I, that all the time. I have a feeling there's some there's some personal experience that that's part of that dissent. So um, anyway, that was a funny case. What what does Justice Ellington say? That's how they do it in the nine one two. Right, right, <laughs> right. Um, because it was a because the random selection of grand jurors was quote not essential and substantial as a provision of the sta- of the statutory scheme governing jury selection. But the majority found that it was. You just can't go. You can't go just pick out local businessmen. Right. You gotta, it's gotta be random. Right. Well, what else do you want to talk about? We've got a couple more minutes. You have any more Court of Appeals? Um, there were a couple others that came out. Um, there was one that I, that I looked at Jones v. State. Mm -hmm. Um, it didn't, it didn't have any new groundbreaking law, but as I read through the case, the facts were just so 
terrible. Okay. It was almost <laughs> hard to read. Like this gentleman was accused of of um, rape and aggravated battery where he um, raped this woman and lit her on fire and then didn't get her medical treatment. And like, I just kept reading it. It kept getting worse and worse. It was like a Lifetime movie or yeah, something. It was. Yeah. It was awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the trial, um, the victim got up and testified and the defendant's counsel cross-examined her. But then the defendant asked to cross-examine her after his counsel did. Because what could possibly go wrong? Because, right. And so above his counsel, <laughs> The jury was going to love him for doing that. Yes. And mm-hmm. so you can imagine how it went. Above counsel's objection, he starts cross-examining the victim and he's just like hammering into her and it's terrible and the judge is getting really upset. So I think that this was, this was the judge maybe losing his or her temper a little bit. But during the cross-examination, the judge said something along the lines of, all of this is the truth about Uh the victim's testimony. Um, So this one came back. It was reversed and remanded because the court expressed an improper opinion as to the guilt of the defendant. You know, and you see reversals for this kind of thing a lot. You've got like a pro se person and the judge just lo- there was one case out of Rome where like the judge just lost his cool with some with some person and there was a JQC issue. Right. And I don't know if that if it was that bad. It didn't look that bad, but this, it's frustration. Yes. This case caught my eye and I, I kind of felt bad for the judge because the the facts were terrible and I can imagine being in that situation and having a similar reaction. So a couple of more, just to run through some things really quickly. Um, okay, court sitting as thirteenth juror. I mean, we're getting I, a lot of these. I may have to. I may have to. I mean, I, I blogged about this this week. Um, so this is State v. Beard S nineteen A O five three five October thirty one two thousand nineteen. I think I talked about thirteenth juror stuff last month. You did twice. They're, they're, the Supreme Court's tired of it. They're yeah. over it. Like stop appealing. They're, they're they basically say, guys, stop appealing this. But, but what made it worse is that the, the this was this is a Fulton County uh, DA's office case. I mean, you can you can hear the frustration in the opinion. This this opinion has lots of fun gems in it. Like um, contrary to the state's biz- this is from the opinion. Okay, I'm quoting the opinion. Contrary to the state's bizarre argument, the the court's the jury's verdict was not demanded by the quote great physical laws of the universe like the like the the laws of nature did not cry out to and revert. ask for this. Yeah, this is not like this. This is not like a production of King Lear or something. You know, this is. Um, so, I mean, I guess they said that, and yeah, you know what? That is bizarre. That's a bizarre thing to say. I don't know if you know what happened after this, but the DA's office got really mad about it. I think I heard they, about it. I think I saw this on Facebook. They all po- they all purchased the entire appellate division, which is pretty big. They all purchased T-shirts that say. I'm paraphrasing. Doesn't it say we are bizarre or for, something? We're like bizarre that? for justice. Oh, okay. I'm thinking about changing my the name of my office to the bizarre of justice, but bizarre. I like that. Yeah. I think. So, but then they they boast a 97 percent uh, win rate as the appellate division. Well, I mean, if you're the state of Georgia and you're always the appellee, I don't think that I think they could probably have roughly that win rate and never file a brief. That's true. That's very true. But they say they're bizarre for justice. Um, some defense attorneys got mad about this. I, I'm all for it. Like I, I, I gave, I give them a standing ovation. I want, in fact, I encourage bizarre arguments. 
when I'm on the other side of them. Oh, yes. Always. Like, bring bizarre argument. Wear that t-shirt to our oral argument. Yes. Wear the t-shirt <laughs> the next time you appeal a case like this. Right. I want to see it happen. Because they say, please stop appealing these. Right. Um, there was, there's a case called Ford, Ford versus Tate, um, October 31, that, that basically a lawyer was chided on habeas for not respecting his clients, death only clients wish to die. Yeah, I thought that one was interesting. Um, I think it, I think it was interesting the approach the court took to the defense attorney. Right, because obviously this is a this is a guy who, you know, there's people that do death penalty work. They have challenging clients like this, and this guy for whatever reason found religion while he was in jail, and decided that it was against his religious beliefs to try to stop the state from trying to execute him. So he didn't authorize, so he, he, he bench tried. He bench tried like both phases of his, well, you know how that's going to go in Georgia. Yes. So he got sentenced to death and then his, then he didn't authorize his direct appeal attorney to file a motion for new trial, but said he wanted to go straight to the court and didn't want to develop a record. So he lost there. And then he basically told his habeas lawyer he didn't want the habeas to be pursued and the habeas lawyer kind of did it anyway. And, you know, it goes the way you would expect it to go. But the Supreme Court's kind of harsh on the lawyer. Yeah. And I get that, like, technically, when you're in those situations, like, yeah, the client decides whether to, whether to end the litigation or not. But I think sometimes part of death penalty work includes, I mean, you're, you're literally trying, you got you a person's life in your hands. And they may not, they may not, they may not be technically insane or technically incompetent, but they're probably not, and I'm going to use something politically incorrect, they're probably not playing with a full deck. Right. And you're trying to save this person's life in spite of themselves. And so I see why he continued with the, with the uh, habeas. And he, he kind of gets called, he kind of gets called on the carpet for it. Yeah, he does. And definitely work as a fairly, I guess, I guess he's not a conscientious lawyer. I guess. I, oh, that's just crazy thinking about that compared to the other one. Yeah, he's not a conscientious lawyer. He's not conscientious. Right. So um, anyway, um, that's uh, there's a couple more, but I think those are the main those are the main ones for this month. Uh, it was a big month. I'm tired. Right. I hope November's not as much. It was it was a, it was distress day. So anything else? Uh, not for this month. All right. Well, that's a wrap. We will see you back in December to talk about hopefully a. We, we promised these were going to be short. We're at the 49-minute mark right now. Yeah, we're now. going to cut it off now. Okay. <laughs> All right. See you all later.